Welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Delling-Pod, and I am so excited about this week's guest. I met him first in Dublin, I think about a, about a year ago. He came up to me and introduced himself, and I was familiar with his work. He's called Dr. Ronan Connolly, and he... You're a, you're an independent scientist. Yeah. Um, now, the only other person I've heard using that, that, that term, I'm sure it's a common one that I just haven't been familiar with, is my friend James Lovelock. Okay. He yeah. describes himself as an independent scientist. What, what does it actually, actually mean? Um, so, I left academia because there is a... Um, there is a problem with the particular way that science works today. And it, it's like you can have uh, very talented scientists that are trying to do good work. Um, but you do get a problem when you're trying to actually... Um, you need you need funding for to do your work. So you, the current system is you actually get a grant. You apply for a grant. And these grants are typically three to four years. And uh, so what happens is people apply for them. And if you want to get another grant, you need to ensure that you're going to get the right answers that you're doing. So you you don't know what you're going to do. Then you're not going to get a grant for something that's, that's a repeating something that has already been done. Um, but you also... Uh, you feel a certain bind that you want to ensure that you're going to get roughly the right hand. Or, you know, roughly, you have an idea of kind of what you're going to do. You don't want to rock the... You, when, you're, yeah. when you're trying to decide what work you're, you're applying for, what am I going to do for the next three years? You're, you're kind of saying... I'm going to sell my soul. Uh, well, you know, what you say is... I, for instance, I've done a particular, like the last three years, you might say, I did all of this looking at, say, if you were looking at organic chemistry and you, you'd you done all of these reactions, studying uh, tri-biphenyl, uh, blah, blah, blah. And you say, well, nobody's done it on biphenyl, you know, ditriphenyl. Di and so you, you can kind of say, well, this is new work, but I also have a feeling that I'll kind of get roughly what I'll do. So you're, you, you're, the focus is more on dotting I's and crossing T's. And it's, it, it always, just to stress, it's not that you are uh, just repeating stuff. You, you can't. You don't get funding for repeating stuff, which is actually a bit of a problem as well. Um, but uh, because science is supposed to be about reproducibility, yeah. but you don't actually get funding for re re for testing work that's already been carried out. Right. I have, and uh, so instead, people are looking and saying, "I want to uh, explore something that I know the rough ballpark of where it's going to come out, and I know I should get some sort of results." If you were to try and go for truly blue sky results. Our research. This is the term blue sky research. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's just saying, let's just see what's out there. Yeah. Um, that you don't, uh, you're, you, it, people find it very hard to get funding for that. But, but speaking as a civilian, yeah, I think that that's the kind of science that I would love to see science, scientists doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree it's a, a bit idealistic, mm. but at the same time, what it means is that you're not going to get the research directed by essentially 
politics because if you're if you're on some level however small trying to please the people who are providing the funding that has a slightly possibly corrupting effect the the, the thing is it's um like i just uh we were talking about this earlier on so like i'm i'm left-wing and i you know i'm coming here to a, a conservative the, yeah, the heart of right-wing evil yeah 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 and so um part of the reason why i've got interested in in like the climate change is, is the topic that i've been researching for the last uh, several years yeah. um and what i found is when i started looking in, at climate change um my results were not were ending up being politically incorrect uh, for my side, the left yes. wing, and uh, and ironically, maybe you could say they're politically correct on the on the on, opposing on, side, yeah, on yeah. the right wing, and so I kind of my when I started to see this political connotation, I was kind of saying surely this should be about science it shouldn't matter whether mine is uh, results are you mean so so essentially you 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 set out to objectively to find out whatever was true yeah and you find yourself accidentally falling on the side of a camp that you'd never would have identified with yeah people like me i mean yeah yeah yeah. on that issue and um you know and i i I, on everything else i'm left doing and even in terms of the um i like i'm in favor of a lot of the motivations behind uh the people that are promoting uh like on the left on my so wealth redistribution social justice uh, uh, the thing for me what i'm finding is that on any given issue you have uh there is always a dynamic if you only look in one side um did you you don't end up uh, getting the full picture yeah and so on everything there's always a little bit of truth on the opposing side and if you kind of ignore that you don't get as as full an understanding of what you're talking about so that was with with climate change but i'm I'm actually now you you really whetted my appetite now i mean i've 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 read some of your stuff but just can you sum up for me i mean when you started researching climate science was this something you knew nothing about and you and, and you so you went from the from the beginning uh, well i so my background i my i initially i did uh, my degree this was uh, um back in in the late 90s and early 2000s so my degree was in uh, chemistry and then i went on to do a phd in polymer physics and computer modeling uh, my father is also a scientist this is uh, dr michael conley and he had is also an independent scientist he had um, he'd been a major, and he'd he'd got very involved in the environmental movement, but in in t- concern about the environment, not so much on climate change. Yeah. He was looking at other things, particularly the uh, crisis of the um, overfishing, the problem that, and uh, the ocean ecology and o- ocean uh, uh, ecosystems, and the fact that like the if you look at um in effect in terms of fishing you know it, fish is in effect the only primary protein source that we that the uh, we are still hunting 
So nobody goes out and hunts a cow, no. or uh, unless they're drunk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe our, our, our yeah. Ireland, they do that all the time, but yeah, we don't no. generally over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it, it's not, uh, you know, so it, we get most of our protein from farmed uh, fish, yeah. and even uh, vegetarians, it's farmed as well. You know, people aren't... There do we aren't... farm vegetarians? I, I think that's, no, that's no. a good idea, actually. Because no, no. they, they eat a nice vegetable <laughs> diet, and they'd probably be quite good to eat. So yeah, well, so so the thing is that like uh, we uh, people that are promoting uh, vegetarian diets, eat, they're not going out hunter gathering. They're not going out gathering. Sure. Um, well, some people are, you know, and maybe we can go to, but we're we're not going hunting in the forest necessarily for to get a huge enough. Uh, food to feed seven and a half well, billion fish yeah I, I, can, yeah I can see that so so and i totally understand that overfishing is a major problem we've seen what happened on the grand banks the way that the cod the cod stocks yeah. were completely depleted in the north sea as well so yeah. the, later on you i know because because i've 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 reversed it whereby the bit we recorded earlier is going to be at the end of this yeah. but we talk about a, a bit about that don't we and i you know i am I'm very much an environmentalist, like you. I think that there are certain issues which are really important. So I can see, I'm glad your father got interested in researching this. But yeah. what was he specifically researching about fish farms? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's like, it, there's there's problems then with the current fish farming technology is that you actually, um, the main problem is that fish farming, in the sense that it, it's uh, reducing um, overfishing, arguably that that would be a good thing but there are a number of problems uh firstly that actually a lot of the the farm fish farming is taking um what's called scrap fish uh ones that are not commercially viable and uh processing that and then feeding it to to uh to the farmed fish and getting a higher value commercial crop and also i I believe i mean unless i'm unless the internet is wrong which it might be but i've seen a film about this where the high incredibly high concentration of heavy metals which was already in these. What, what do they call this? The the the, the stock the stockfish? Did you say? No, the, oh, the, oh, the the well, it's the lower. That's that's a, a term. You know, you scrap fish, scrap or fish. you know, are it's it's non commercially viable fish. Yeah. It's ones that people would not buy in the shops. But if you can then uh, sell, you know, sell that, or if you can then feed that to like salmon, salmon. or trout uh, that are higher up on the food chain. That then they are more commercially viable. So that's one aspect. You're not you're not necessarily reducing the uh, fishing uh, with with that. Yeah. Uh, but then the other problem is that the fish farms themselves have a they produce a lot of biological waste, um, and so there's caps that are put on how much uh, discharge. Every fish farm is a uh, in most countries well certainly in the developed world uh they where people are concerned about pollution they at least if you're concerned about uh the discharge from the fish farms you have to keep cap so you're you're mandated you can only discharge this amount so that's um as the population increases if we want to continue doing this we there's gonna be a, there's a big problem with scaling up with the current technology, and then you also have the other problem that because fish farms are trying to uh, maximize 
the yield that they're doing with this cap on how much they're allowed to discharge yeah where you're, you're finding a lot of fish farms are doing very high densities and this is leading to uh problems where the fish are not uh i'm not saying all fish farmers are doing this but you do find that some that are trying to push it because i you know a lot of the fish farms that i've talked to they actually don't do this it's it's a it's good practice but you do get some that are pushing the boundaries and having higher densities than uh they would if they were able to and and, and i imagine because because uh, as i told you before my dad used to run a tropical fish shop so i know yeah. about, about nitrates and nitrites and yeah. things that you've got to got to stop building up in the yeah. in the fish tanks and also stress yeah fish are very very susceptible to stress yeah and if they get stressed they get diseases so yeah. i i know that there are all sorts of parasites you get on these yeah you this is it I, a lot what i like what we were finding is that a lot of uh when you see fish lice and things like this a lot of the times it can often be explained by overcrowding or higher densities and and it, so there are a lot of fundamental problems which are and people that are trying to do a good job with this because this is one of the things where we like this is why my father got into this and i joined up with him after i finished my phd is you're trying to deal with um uh challenges that uh the solutions that you're coming up with also have may have problems with them that you're trying to reduce them while you're also trying to switch to that so so i like um my father came up with a number of uh technologies for for developing for trying trying to overcome this for coming up with totally recycled systems it's still an ongoing work that we're doing um i'd um so it, it is something that I'm going to return to. But one of the things that I'm finding, this is more to segue back into what yep. we were talking about, because we could talk forever about this as well. Well, you could, because you're Irish. Yeah. And and, and I, I have to say, <laughs> I, I could just... I reckon I could record about five hours, and you wouldn't you wouldn't stop, and it would be all be interesting. Well, interesting to me anyway. I don't know about, about the... probably your your listeners maybe not so much. Okay, but like uh, yes, yeah, certainly I could. We could talk about this forever. Uh, but like, um, what what led me to the climate change thing is that like a lot of the times I would be finding. Um, so when I finished my PhD, I was looking at seeing the choice of continuing on in academia uh, with this kind of. Um, it's it's just unfortunate the way things are that this is the way the scientific community is is kind of dealing with this thing where they're trying to trying to to get uh, funding to continue in their particular where they want to go but they have to kind of cut corners in order to achieve uh, to get funding they have to kind of scale back what they may be there their main interests are towards uh, what what they're, they're they right they're, yeah this is not like I'm not trying to say that scientists are um, skewing you know going in into things it's just a practicality of well you're talking about one of the fundamental problems that we all have it is it, like how many people go to art college. And, and and what percentage of those people at art college become artists? In the, uh, the most of them may, might become graphic designers or something peripheral to the art. They might just use their skills, and many of them probably won't use their skills at all. Yeah. In the same way, 
I'm sure scientists start out when they when they leave when they leave college like you they 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 think right I'm going to I'm going to discover radium or <laughs> yeah or or whatever I I'm going to be Marie Curie or, uh, and then they discover that actually no they're basically grunts in the service of a of of of, of some some kind of big pharmaceutical company or or whatever that, that that's what they're doing so you're 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 stating for what applies in the arts also applies in the in the sciences and if you really want to just like blue sky think yeah then you have to be independent of that um it it, it largely it, it it's it's just just a, the practicality of uh, like within academia um and i i i am very conscious of the fact that i know quite a few people like like a lot of the people that i talk to are are working in academia and they are actually doing good stuff that's like very uh insightful and cutting edge but it's it's often not so much on their uh while they're they're working for their official project it's it's you'll you'll find and you'll find a lot of like say um professors that have uh, re- retired is right. actually when they they can actually start and the real work begins for 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 some people it's they actually say right oh well now i don't have to worry about grants anymore i'm just gonna do i have my pension i just kind of Fantastic. work on whatever they want to do but it, you know they're not necessarily going to do this for forever so there is this it's it's a difficulty and it's hard to know what to do with it my own feeling is that i think um, if if more uh, scientists were to try and if they if they if like policymakers were more aware of these challenges, that like f- here's one mechanism that you could do which is not currently implemented is I I think a lot of um, like we were talking. Uh, before we started this thing on there's like thomas kuhn uh wrote a a very influential book on how science progresses in the 1960s i think it was 1962 and what he argued that there was two modes of science one is normal science and the other is revolutionary science and so normal science is the day-to-day uh doing the what i described the dotting i's and crossing t's and it's like assuming that whatever you have started all of the textbook material that you worked with that you learned in college that that's valid and you just are building on that and you're not really rocking the boat too much but you know you're you're moving progressing forward and that is a very important part of science because if you start questioning your very fundamentals that you're doing it, you, you'll never get anything done. Yeah. So you need people that are uh, progressing on, that, you know, filling in the gaps. Um, but you also do need to have some people that are working away and just kind of asking, well, you know, this is great. You're dotting all of the I's and the J's. For some reason, people don't seem to dot J's as much as uh, they used to. Yeah. Uh, and crossing all of the T's. But you do need people saying, is that the right word <laughs> that we should be using? Maybe we should be using a different word yeah. that doesn't have an I. Maybe be, be using the Cyrillic alphabet. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah. So, so um, to try, I think we should, I think the scientific community should try and um, shift towards 
allowing mechanisms for um, allowing uh, people to do more blue sky research. But I don't think that we should abandon the the current grant system as it is. I think we should come up with ways to supplement that. So, so okay, let's cut to the chase here, Ronan. I, I like the fact that you... you I love the fact that your dad's an independent scientist as well and, the, and yeah. the, you did this this really worthwhile research into, I hate the word sustainability more than almost anything, but I think what you were doing there was, was good yeah. good sustainability. Yes. How to, how to c- conserve our, uh, our environment better while, yeah. while maintaining our standard of living, which I think yes. is, one of the, is, is one of my objections of the green movement, that often it wants to treat humans as a sort of, unnecessary um right a blight on the planet rather than as something that that has got to live with the planet and 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 people who want a better standard of living and why shouldn't they so you seem to have reconciled that with your research to a degree but what i want to know is you you went into climate change research completely open-minded i imagine yeah, yeah what did you find well yeah okay so um like Obviously, in terms of the environment, I was more interested in 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 like in those issues that we were talking about, the overfishing and the wastewater treatment and all of this. But like, obviously, whenever the last, let's say the last 10 years or even 10, 15 years, people would, when you say you're an environmentalist, they, the first question, you know, people would say, oh, so you're looking at climate change, you're going to save the, save the planet that way. And so I was kind of like, well... I should look at that, shouldn't I? Yeah, yeah. And say with my father, we both said that. And so we just started to actually look and see, well, what, what's the data saying? And, uh, you know, how, how, how bad is it? What are, how bad are we, how much climate change are we causing? And what can we do about it? And so that's kind of when the, the, the problem started, as it were, is that, um, broadly, if we were to go back, I, I, I don't know if we've time to just go back here to how views on global warming uh, seem to have arisen. So this is from what I'm, when you do a bit of historical research into the development of uh, what's now called, uh, is you hear the term anthropogenic global warming, which it just means, anthropogenic just means human caused. Uh, but it sounds a bit sciencier when you say anthropogenic, and so people use use that. And you'll often hear the words climate change and global warming treated synonymously with that. But actually, when you look at it, there is a distinction uh, between um, what's called detection and what's called attribution. So when you find evidence that the climate is changing, that's very important and interesting work. But uh, or if you find that it's uh, warmer now than it was in the late 19th century, that's also important. Uh, but then how much is human caused? How much is natural? Yeah. So in the 60s, there was kind of a, a kind of a from my reading of the scientific literature, when you look at it, the papers going back to the 19th century and then the early 20th century and the mid 20th century up to present, um, the climate change was not a very widely discussed, it wasn't a, a major component of the peer-reviewed literature you you'd had papers every now and then but nowhere near the mainstream viewed way that it is today 
in the early 20th century uh up to the mid 20th century there was um people there was kind of a division of labor that the what would be called climate scientists were mostly looking at um evidence of climate change and they weren't so much looking at the causes but they mm-hmm. were just trying to identify things so you had people like hubert lamb and uh others like that that were looking and trying to saying oh actually it turns out the climate has not been constant uh you know who'd have thought yeah and so that the climate changes so we want to try and understand that and so you had this kind of section of academia that was dealing with this in the 50s and 60s the average computer uh cpu and memory and all of that is uh way below the capabilities of your of a of a modern pocket calculator or a smartphone um so the computing power was quite limited then and um so the originally people were started looking and see if they could do weather forecasting and weather modeling and so a lot of the technology began in that period of time but you had some people that started looking and seeing well can we study the climate as a more broad statistically averaged uh, system and they wanted to try and describe as much as possible in as few terms as they could because the computing power was quite weak um and so if you could so the if you read like papers by gilbert plass um in the 1950s uh i el uh, sazer in um in mit in the 1940s uh, manabay and wetherald in the 1960s one of the things what they did it's quite clear is they wanted to see how much of the climate and the atmosphere can we describe in terms of what looked like the most promising thing which is the concentration of infrared active gases what we call greenhouse gases and uh, water vapor was the main one and then um carbon dioxide and then ozone and so the early computer models were trying to fit the data the observe the observations that were there of how the atmosphere behaved how you got the temperature profile as you go up, up in the atmosphere to try and explain as much of that as possible in terms of greenhouse gases um and so that was put into the things it's it's like uh, radiative physics components of the computer models now they were using um good good science that was there they were using good physics equations that had been derived and but they were trying to do it as few as they could and then what they found was that they started to get it so that they could explain the broad behavior of the uh, atmospheric temperature profiles in terms of uh, co2 ozone and water vapor i i'm just trying to simplify things um here but they they didn't get very good matches but by tweaking a few things here they were able to get something that was broadly right or seemed to broadly match with the observations and then they said we now have a computer model that can model the climate 
Right. And so then the next step that was was there was, oh, well, can we make predictions about how the climate would change? And because in their computer models, the main driver of climate was CO2 and uh, these other greenhouse gases. They said, well, it was a realization there that CO2 was increasing because of uh, human activity from fossil fuel usage and chiefly, but, you know, so we had been, and we know that there has been an increase in CO2 uh, observed since 1958 and it's been steadily increasing there's a number of uh, obser- obser- uh, observatories around the world that have been monitoring and so this is like clearly uh, co2 is increasing so the models started predicting when we double co2 we are going to get global warming and so the people that were looking at these models then started publishing papers on this and it became quite a big uh, you know started to get a bit of traction and there's many papers in the 60s and 70s that are making this claim or this prediction and you can see the justification for it it's not like a a crazy thing they were doing what they they thought made sense the problem was that in the 60s and 70s temperatures were going the wrong way so the the more the the empiricists the climate historians and climate change the climate scientists that were looking at the data they were finding that uh, global temperatures were decreasing um and they continued to do that till the 70s from the 40s and uh, so so this kind of was leading to two separate paths of the scientific community looking at climate change you had one half that were looking at the computer model predictions and the other was looking at the data and so they were kind of at loggerheads but like in the scientific community loggerheads you, you can see a a, a a paper that said something nuanced saying this has been disputed by whatever but it, they're generally you don't see many curse words or anything right. doing it it's, yeah. it's, it's quite uh, civilized uh, discourse but you still have people were completely disagreeing with other side then in the 80s the uh, temperatures started to increase again and so the, what you then started to have was that some of the climate historians and the people looking at the data set finally started to say, oh, the models were right they all came along. Round. This, is, this is the global warming that the models had predicted. And isn't this when it starts to get dangerous, when st- scientists start to approach unanimity on an issue, which yeah. is not healthy, is it? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, in, in general, like, uh, you know, science... Like people, you hear the term scientific consensus uh, is continually mentioned by uh, with relation to climate change. But actually, I would say if you are doing science, then you're not actually so interested in is there a consensus or not. Uh, science science isn't a democracy if anything it's a dictatorship you have to find out uh, what's what does nature say is happening so it's great to have all of these predictions about what you're doing but you do need to say well what's actually happening and, yes. yeah, 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 uh, yeah. yeah 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 so yeah so in the so 
basically what happened is they when global temperatures started rising again we we started to get the communities started to converge a bit but you then had so chiefly like in the, uh, like in the US um James Hansen uh, quite famously in 1988 um Al Gore and Timothy Wirt invited him to speak in either Congress it was or a congressional session. hearing yeah 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 sure. and to present his results and this was like uh, a NASA scientist who was uh, from both the com- computer modeling community and from the temperature data analysis so these he was one of the people that was had had one foot in both camps and so he then said oh they are now converging and we we have like we're seeing global warming this is vindicating the climate models and so now we can say okay this is things and partly on that basis uh, and there were other people similarly doing this. You had uh, internationally, it started to get mainstream attention. You had the UN set up what's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC reports, and uh, that that's how it started to go. And in the initial IPCC reports, you still had some of the old guard of climate scientists and uh, climate historians who were were still a bit wary of the climate models and the fact that most of the warming had occurred in the uh, in the up to the 1940s yep. when uh, CO2 was still not that high above pre-industrial levels and then you had the cooling coming down but it seems that over time um the ones that didn't really go on board with that seem to have uh their voices have been quietened down and the ones that are more towards the this other message that it's it's all it's all or mostly human caused they seem to be gaining traction in the political sphere as it were so getting back to when i came in yeah, when I started looking at it, and the same with my father, we looked and said there was a big problem, which had already been partially identified in the 1980s, which was this problem called uh, the urban heat island effect. So if you look at urban areas are warmer than the surrounding countryside, um, and this is well known, it's been known since the 1800s, where London was the first uh, one that's been documented that there was an urban heat island. And so this is a real form of, uh, it's, it's, it's climate change. It's also human-caused climate change, but it's a localized phenomenon. And you can find, it's, it seems, it's nothing to do with carbon dioxide directly or anything like that. It seems to be related to uh, the buildings, the road surfaces. There's a lot of complex dish, but it's, it's urban areas warmer than the surrounding countryside. So if you, the problem is, this is a, that urban areas are only a couple of percent of the land surface. So uh, when you are trying to calculate global temperatures, it if you are using a station that is located in an urban area now, say Paris or London or Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo or something like that, you will have detect this warming from the growth in urbanization 
um, which is not representative of the surrounding countryside. And unfortunately, the problem that we quickly realized was it turns out that the best kept station records are in urban areas. It's very hard to uh, keep a continuous 150 year record out in a in like a the boondocks yeah yeah it, it like some sheep herding hill in in yeah 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 so uh the you get about it uh you do have some station particularly now that we have in the last 20 and 30 years or 40 years when we've started getting automatic weather stations we have a lot of short-term records for rural areas but if we want to go back further most of the older of the long-term records are actually urban now and so how do you correct for this urban warming and this has been a very contentious because it was per first brought up noticed in the 80s by some of the climate historians who started warning that some of the warming that had been observed in this uh, 1980s might be due to this urbanization bias so was that the main problem you you noticed? That was the thing that kind of got your your scientific antennae, your sceptical antennae working. Yeah, I w I just started to say, well, well, okay. I was looking and saying I could see that there was scientific literature looking at this, but I was like, I just wanted to know how they had resolved it, and uh, I knew that they the people were aware of it, but I wanted to know how it resolved. And how how had they resolved it? Um, it's. It's <laughs> it's like I don't want to get too bogged down in the technical details um, and I don't want to start I the people that are working on this there seems to be a lot of good faith actually people that are looking at this and I've spoken to quite a few people involved in trying to correct for this problem yeah. um, and um, most of the people that I've talked to on this they genuinely believe that their analysis, they're, they're doing a good job. And the, the basis for their analysis does seem to have like a theoretical rigor, but it's, it's not adequately tested against the data. And you actually find on both sides, on the skeptical side and the, uh, the ones arguing that it's, it's mostly human caused, you know, you see both sides of them. There are people that are looking and saying that issue has been resolved. I'm finding that what in the published papers that we did, like uh, we did one in uh, published in Earth Science Reviews in 2015. And what we did was we just simply said, can we identify regions um, that have a lot of rural data that goes back to the yeah. early 20th century? And, it, and it's very hard to get hold of that. Uh, we were only able to identify and also there's other problems associated with like you have a lot of stations in india that go back to the 1880s and that are nominally rural now but then when you look at the data it says the station is is in a rural location but it has 10 years and then a gap of 10 years and then you have 20 years and then a gap of 10 years and you there's there's very little documentation about what happened to the station was right. it moved did it was it right. somewhere else okay so how do you correct for that some places where there is data so we identified um four different regions in the northern hemisphere it comprises um 
about uh, of the long-term records that are rural, it comprises about 70%, I, I forget, 60 to 70% of the, depending on how you, when you start, of the data that is genu- that is truly rural still. When we looked at that data, what we found is that you get a lot of similarities in the in the curves that do it. We find it's warmer now in uh, than it was in the 1880s. That says how far what you were able to go back, but that uh, which agrees. But we find it got warmer from the 1880s to the 1940s. Then it got colder to the 70s, which we talked about earlier, and then it got warmer. And it's about the same, according to this rural composite, it's about the same now as it was in the 40s. So it seems that the net effects of the urbanization biases uh, seem to have led to a slight cool or a slight underestimation of the 1940s to 70s cooling and an overestimation of the 1980s to present warming. So, and there's subtle changes, but it's enough to change it from being, uh, from fitting nicely to the increases in CO2 to not fitting with the CO2 curves. So that's, that's your bombshell conclusion. Yeah, that, that was, yeah. That's, that's, quite, that's quite dramatic, because let me just sort of sum this up. Yeah. You, you're not, you're not a right-wing person. You're not ideologically committed to climate change denial or whatever you want to call it yeah you're an independent scientific researcher yeah you looked at the you looked at a lot of papers yeah you, you did your own research of the temperature of the weather stations in, yeah. in rural areas and you concluded that there's really not much evidence that atmospheric co2 anthropogenic co2 has caused a dramatic in, in, increase in yeah, yeah. I change. what I I'll say to, to put it in because I part of what I I my approach to science, which seems to be in it, is you. Uh, I believe that scientists. I that this is the way that I was trained in how to do it is when you come up with a theory, you should try and destroy it yourself yes. that i feel that you should do that now some would argue that you can let other scientists do that and it's fair enough but that was the way that i trained so when i put forward a stuff and same same with my father we try and look when we put forward as something say okay well let's see can i prove myself wrong yeah and it's only when you have tried your as much as you can to disprove your your own thesis uh, which often you quickly can do, yeah. but if you can't, then you kind of say, "Well, okay, I haven't been able to disprove this theory, and I've been trying. So now I'll put it out into the to the scientific community and see if somebody else can." And so, what I can say on that is specifically, if we try to fit that rural northern hemisphere rural composite. Uh, which I will say it's only, it's like, it's a subset. It's it's like 90% of the Northern Hemisphere rural long-term records, but are like, no, I think it's something like 60, 55 to 60%. It's about it's something like that. Uh, but like, um, if you, when, when we tried to fit that in terms of carbon dioxide, observed trends of carbon dioxide, we actually get a better fit to um, one of the 
uh, estimates of solar variability and we can talk a little bit about it i'd say one of the estimates that's in the peer-reviewed literature than to uh, co2 you get an almost uh, very good fit to it um to, to solar variability solar to one of the versions of solar variability um and then we get almost nothing left to co2 if we do try to fit it to co2 we get a some bit maybe uh, the difference between the 1940s warm period and present that may be some of that, but if you say, oh, maybe that that's a CO2, that you have natural variability and CO2, which is uh, quite plausible. Um, but what we're finding is what's called the transient climate response. This is the, the term that the climate modelers use for describing how much uh, warming should we expect from a CO2? How much have we, can we see immediately? Um, we're getting it being like less than 0.4, an upper limit of 0.4 degrees for a doubling of CO2, whereas the climate models are saying it should be more than three times that. And we're finding that you can actually explain it all just in terms of this particular solar variability data set. Right. Uh, I'll just say a bit on it. I'm not wedded to that particular solar variability data set. I'm quite skeptical of that particular data set. This is the uh, Heuchenschatten uh, 1993 estimate when it's updated. But you, you, what, what, what we looked at, he said, said, I, you know, in this paper, we said, well, uh, wait a second. What, what's this data set? Why is this saying one thing and then the one that the IPCC climate models is using is saying something else? Uh, so the data set for solar variability that the IPCC, this is the, the climate models use for explaining changes in the solar output, that shows that the solar input increased from the um, Maunder minimum up to, well, actually, yeah, just after the Maunder minimum, because it starts just after the Maunder minimum, but it increased over the 19th, 18th and 19th century, peaked in the 50s and then declined. And they, according to the data set, which, uh, which the IPCC computer models used for quantifying natural variability according to that it has been the solar uh, contribution should have been declining and that's uh, the main basis of why the un ipcc reports say that the warming since the 1950s cannot be explained in terms of natural variability it's they're assuming if we assume that this data set that they're using is correct then it cannot be explained by the computer models in terms of it. And it's, it's true if you do that. But why use that data set when there's other data sets in the peer-reviewed literature? Right. And that, I think, is a very... That question hasn't been adequately resolved by the IPCC. And we published, we said that quite explicitly in that 2015 paper, which is now four years ago. And, uh, you know, the next IPCC report uh, for that, I've seen the new papers that are saying, what should the, what data set should the climate modelers use? They're saying for what's called CMIP6, oh yeah, 
forget about all of that. We've got a new one that shows almost no solar variability. And again, but what, it, what little it shows, shows it should have declined from the 50s. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but presumably you started out sort of imagining just, just loosely that the scientific so-called consensus on climate change yeah. was, was correct because, yeah. hey, why would so many scientists get it wrong? Or yeah. like, why would they lie to us? And you came out very sceptical of, yeah. of CO2 theory. Yeah, I don't know. And so, yeah, well, let's say not so much of the CO2, but, that you know, because this was my initial thing, because I'm always I'm I'm I try to seek all different perspectives on everything. So, you know, there's always a lot of times there's always a, a hint of something in there, you know, that might be true. And we know the as I was saying that those early computer models in the 1960s and 70s, they were using physical observations. We know that CO2 is an infrared active gas. That means it absorbs and emits uh, infrared uh, radiation. Okay, I'll just explain a little bit about it. So radiation sounds quite ominous. It sounds like something that might cause uh, Spider-Man yeah. or, or something like that. When, in, in, when we, in scientific community, when we talk to radiation, light is a form of radiation so when we say light but what we call light is light that we can see it's visible but there are frequencies of light that are um longer uh, than than our eye can see uh, and that are shorter than than our eye can see so one half of that the bits that that are is is called ultraviolet so it's more violet than violet it's so violet that we can't even see it mm. and then we have ones that are in the other end of the spectrum that's called infrared and it's so red that we can't see it and so it turns out that infrared is the the infrared light that we can't see but it, it's very important in trying to understand how heat is distributed and it turns out that carbon dioxide when you look at uh, at this as that the, the oxygen and nitrogen the main uh, bulk gases of the atmosphere are relatively transparent to infrared radiation and that was discovered by uh, john tyndall in the 19th century and he was irish so he must have been right yeah of course he was yeah 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 no I, his work is is if you've done chemistry which i that was my primary degree was in chemistry uh you know infrared spectroscopy is a very important part so we know it's infrared active the question is how much role does that have on uh atmospheric temperatures yeah and so when you start to look at that that's what i'm finding is that the model it had a theoretical basis but every time that we've checked at it, we're finding that it doesn't match with the, with the Which is what I hear from other people like David Evans, for example. Don't we? You come yeah. across David Evans. He's, he's got a... The, 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 what's, what's, what seems to be becoming clearer is that this notion that anthropogenic CO2 um, and water vapour yeah. are, the, are the sort of primary driver of, yeah. of climate change... It's, we're missing pieces of the jigsaw yeah and there are other factors solar radiation or whatever yeah 
um, and that this is really not being acknowledged, I think, by the so-called consensus. Would you agree with that? Um, Yeah, well, here's the problem. One of the other problems with this, you see, climate science is a... Uh, a multidisciplinary re- subject. Yeah. There, uh, what I mean by that is that um, it touches on so many widely different disciplines. Um, everything from, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, you have the computer modeling, you have the climate historians, you have people looking at doing the observations, you have people looking at what's called the cryosphere, looking at uh, say ice coverage. Sure. Uh, you have people looking at trying to estimate long-term uh, trends using what's called paleoclimate, looking at tree rings, looking at ice cores, and yeah. all of these things. So we have such a huge number of disciplines that are involved in this, and with the way what we were talking about, with the way that the scientific community has become orientated, if you want to become an expert in a particular field, uh, the you have to kind of specialize in one small aspect, and you have to be if you want to be the expert in uh, looking at Arctic sea ice trends or something like that. You 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 can't go and. Uh, spend much of your time looking at, say, the urban heat island or something like that. You cannot. You just don't have the time. But yet, yet we do see people in those individual fields. Yeah. I mean, if you asked any member of the British Antarctic Survey, yeah, they would not go. Well, I'm sorry. I, you know, I only deal with 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 the you know with with. Uh, um, the ice, uh, yeah. everything else is above my pay grade. They never say that. They go, yeah, well, the science is settled. The, 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 they all subscribe to the theory that you've, your independent research has showed you is not necessarily reliable. Yeah, it's, well, they will say that. I What I'm finding is, um, I, I'm finding it very difficult to... Um, because what I, what we found, you know, this is what I said earlier on. I said, I want to, you know, when you've tried to rip your, your thesis to shreds and you've failed, you say, okay, well, let's see if somebody else can do that. And um, from my discussions that are generally off the record with other members of the scientific community, I'm not able to find anybody that is actually capable of ripping what I'm saying to shreds. They on a one to one. I'm sure they can do that on a, a where they can maybe if somebody is listening to this podcast or whatever, they they'll be able to say, oh, they didn't discuss. He didn't discuss the uh, technicalities of data homogenization, which, okay, I I do if you read the papers or whatever. Look, it's something that I'm actively involved in, but you can just kind of, without describing the things. So if you want to, you can pick holes. But I mean, actually, genuine scientific uh, critiques. And what I've been finding from most of the scientists that I'm discussing by the way, most people, when you do actually have a discussion, they're actually, scientists are a lot more open-minded, but they're not on the record because, you know, but they will, uh, they will say a, a common thing that I get is on a particular topic that I'm talking about, people will say, okay, yeah, actually you're making good points on this particular aspect. And it's okay, so well, what about these other things out of your side and say, 
And the typical, a very common reply is, well, I'm not an expert in that, but the IPCC says right, this. Right, yeah. And uh, they do say that, and then they say, I haven't researched it. So, I, but I, because I haven't researched it, I'll just go with what the IPCC right. says, says. Do you know what? I'm, I'm slightly worried about you, you getting your, your, your yes. plane. Yes, yes. I, I, I love having a captive climate science, particularly an in, independent climate scientist with left-wing credentials so i know that you're not trying to please me or say yeah. you know it's been a pleasure having you on on, uh, on the podcast and the the next po- the section of the podcast is, is what we recorded earlier whereas yeah. you're asking me questions yeah uh, which are which are which are quite interesting well for those for, with an appetite for such a thing but thank you very much um you're listening well uh, yes you're listening to the delling delling pod with me james delling and my very special guest Dr. Ronan Connolly, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye.